Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to the Word. Genesis chapter 6. Today we're going to look at the flood, at wickedness, at judgment, and promise. I know, a great Christmas season title, right? It is, it is, I assure you. You know, now last week, uh, let me just give a little perspective here. Last week, um, one person showed up for worship uh, in the text in Genesis 4 and 5. They didn't like what happened, so they ended up murdering the only other person that showed up for worship. And I just, in lieu of that, want to remind you all that it's Tyler that chooses the songs each week. <laughs> just kidding. He's not here today. I can do that. And I, can, I can downplay it later when he returns. I'm just joking. But this week, we actually see where a cruise ship sets sail. So you never know what the, the Bible's going to throw at you, right? All right. Well, we're going to go to Genesis 6 this morning. Let me begin reading in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. When the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I I want us to see something today that I think is most important for this passage. And here's what I really want you to walk away with today. Sin grieves God deeply, and he will not tolerate wickedness. But Jesus makes one righteous, and he holds us safe in God's eternal salvation. And I can't think of anything more appropriate for us to celebrate in the season of his coming than to talk about that gift that he gives to us when by faith we repent of our sin and trust in him. Now beginning with Genesis 6, when we come to this passage of Scripture, you might say that Genesis 6 and the chapters that immediately follow it comprise the material of sci-fi geekiness. I mean, there's more details in here that you can geek out on than, than, than we would ever have time to completely walk through. And these verses, because of that, present some of the hardest details for all of Scripture to work through. I'm not going to try to cover all of those. We just simply don't have time, and, and I don't think it's necessary for us to. But one that I want to identify here are to simply ask, who is it that is referred to, and it talks about in verse 2, the sons of God, and then later the Nephilim come from them, the mighty men of old, or the men of renown. Who, who are these people? 
These are some of the questions that are important, but that also make it very difficult for us to interpret these passages of Scripture. And, and in, in that light, the one that I most want us to, to look at, and I'll tell you why after I identify it, is that first one. Who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? There, there are three, basically, uh, throughout history, there have been three positions that most commentators have taken on this. First of all, they believe that they might be angels who came down and who inhabited the earth and began to take wives for themselves. So you've got this aspect of uh, the mythological taking place there, if you will. One of the second uh, theories is that these are human judges or rulers, and so they are people on the earth, but they're elevated in some status or in some way, and they had reached that elevated status in that day and time, and they were beginning to exert themselves over, shall we say, the common people or the normal people of the day. The third option is that the sons of God are a reference to the descendants of Seth. The descendants of Seth. Now, I'm going to pick up this third option, and I believe it's probably the most accurate and likely the one that gives the best representation. And, and let me tell you why. This is actually more important for why. Because in the literary structure of the book of Genesis, when we first began to study this book, we talked about how the book is laid out in ten segments, ten literary segments. Uh, passages or portions, and they're identified by these phrases that begin from the generations of, or these are the generations of. And the reason I believe that these are the sons of Seth is that we find ourselves in that second uh, Toledot or scripture passage where we're looking at the generations of Adam have come to a close, but his offspring, Seth. And last week, we talked about how uh, uh, Adam and Eve, when they lost their son Abel by his brother Cain, we see that God gave another son to Adam and Eve, and his name was Seth. And then chapters 4 and 5 contrast the two lineages of Cain and Seth, how Cain's became ever more wicked as it walked away from God, but how Seth was one who walked with God. And, and his seventh, as we looked at, was Enoch, who we know walked with God and then was no more. And then we also know that Noah became one of the sons of Seth. And it is the life of Noah that we will pick up on. And each of these Toledotes, or the generations of, as it is structured, doesn't focus on the one whose generations it identifies, but it culminates in one of their offspring to show all of God's work through their family lineage. And when we come to the life of Seth, that's what we see, but we see it in the person of Noah. Noah who will be our feature individual, if you will, on the earth at this time in this passage. And so as we think about all the details that could be unpacked here, the, the Nephilim, the, uh, the men of renown, the, the mighty men of old, as we talk about 
the flood and the details of, of what transpired there and how it could uh, have influenced or impacted the, the age of the earth as most will draw it back to and, and what that means for us. I'm not saying those aren't important details and great for personal study and greater understanding, but for our purposes here and for our purposes of the study of Genesis, I want us to stay at a level where we can look at the passage and we can see it in its literary structure and we can understand what is God saying to us about it, the redemptive history of humanity? Because obviously the flood plays a big part in the redemptive history of humanity when he wiped out all but a few humans, right? And that's what I want us to see today. The main thing in the midst of all of the, the geekiness freaking out over, you know, geeking out, whatever you call that today. The main thing that we should say about these opening verses is found in verse 5. What is it that God saw when he looked upon the earth? And that's what I want us to draw our attention to today. Now when God created chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis he used a very distinct pattern. Remember, he originated, creatio ex nihilo, out of nothing he created. But he not only originated, he separated. He separated the waters. He separated the light from the darkness. So he separated, he gave designation to each of the parts that he separated. And then in that designation, he began to give order and pattern. And over and over again in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this pattern. Origination, separation, designation, order, and pattern for purpose. This is the way of God. But when, when we come back to Genesis chapter 6, and we begin to look at what's taken place, here's what we're going to begin to see, that creation is overrunning the established boundaries that God has given to them, and it begins to move with sin at an accelerating rate back towards chaos. If you just do a, a brief overview of chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, you'll begin to see that where God brought order out of chaos that where God created out of nothing and brought something but it was beautiful it was glorious and God looked at it and what did he say when he looked at his creation it's good when you come to Genesis 6 5 when God looks at creation he didn't say good what has happened creation is reversing its order it is flowing against the very design and order that God gave to it. What is taking place? It all begins in Genesis 3. And where that little temptation of Eve at the tree by the serpent, where she took the fruit and she ate because she was deceived, and she gave it to her husband and, and he ate. And then we begin to see what seems so innocent and just... You know, just a slight moment of, of, of bad judgment by Adam and Eve, some have dismissed it as. And it's typically the way we dismiss our own little occurrences of sin. Now we begin to see that it takes root at a depth of people's heart, the, the person of Cain, that is really unimaginable. It's so deeply rooted and it's so to the core of their being. But it also begins to expand with an increasing and an accelerating speed and, 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 and coverage. 
That this is what's taking place. And as it spreads and as man increases, the wickedness upon the face of the earth is also increasing at an overwhelming rate and degree. We saw this with Cain and his seventh son, Lamech. Cain, who killed, and then Lamech, who celebrated the killing of and relished in his own killing. What is it that God sees? He sees the wickedness of man and how great it was on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a long way from good. A long, long way from good. He's establishing the rationale for the flood here because when he saw his creation, he now saw the greatness of man's sin and of the wickedness and the evil of his heart. Genesis states for us that the Lord regretted that he had made man because he was grieved in his heart over his sin. Now, if you ever wanted to know how God responds to you in your sin, here you have a great, a great picture, a great answer. Because, friends, listen to me. If you learn anything from Genesis, you should be studying the nature and the character of God by his responses, by his actions that initiate, but also his responses to people. Because you are learning who he is in his earliest revelation to us. And what we see and in the way we come to understand that he responds to us in our sin is that sin grieves him to the core of his being. But his regret, friends, understand this, is not over simply having made man, but rather over what man has made of himself because of sinfulness in his heart. He, he regrets this chaos, this denial and running from order that has taken hold of the world. You see, grief... And judgment from God does not mean hatred towards man, but rather the love of man, even in his wickedness. If, if God did not love man, there would be no grief over having to destroy him, wipe him out, and start over. No, the very grief of God in his heart tells us that there was love for man, but he would not allow it, the wickedness, to continue and so we see this in the last of verse 8, a most hopeful spark. But at the end of all of this, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. There's a big question we need to ask today. Why is it that Noah found favor with God? You see, you and I, we want to know this, this answer. And the reason we want to know it is because if we know why God set his grace on Noah, we can learn why God will set his grace on anyone. And that's what we're going to pursue today. But before it says anything about Noah, what it says to us is that even in the midst of when God sees the earth covered with increasing and accelerating wickedness, he finds a man upon whose life he will rest his grace and he will use that man. This is the true inclination, the true nature of God's heart. For God is holy and just and he will not tolerate sin. But he sets his love on those 
who walk with him. You see, Genesis 6, 8 brings us to a high point of the generational segment with Noah, Seth's son. And it tells us that Noah was a righteous man. And that statement strikes a spark of light within a sea of darkness. I mean, everything that you see in this is just wickedness is covering the face of the earth. And all of a sudden, this spark comes out of nowhere, it seems. And so against the billowing tsunami of advancing sin and accelerating wickedness upon the face of the earth, Noah stood out before God as blameless in his generation, it tells us uh, in verse 9. And there is one explanation that's given for his blamelessness, and that is this, that he walked with God. He walked with God. So why did God set his favor on Noah except that he knew Noah? And friends, what I want you to hear today is that the one that God is seeing and the one that God saves is the one that God knows. Galatians chapter 4 tells us this, that true salvation is not just knowing God. True salvation is being known by God. And when God sees and he knows, here's what we'll learn today. He remembers. He remembers. That's the explanation that is given. You see, Noah is not righteous because of his works or his deeds. Noah is not the hero of this story. Noah is the instrument of righteousness that God will use. Noah isn't the kind of guy that we are tempted to look at and go, you know what, he makes the right decisions. (laughs) He makes them at the right time. And he makes them in the right way every time. Man, we need to be like Noah. No, no, friends. That's not what this story is about. Noah is a great guy. This isn't anything against Noah. But if you walk away here thinking this, I need to be more like Noah, you've missed the boat. That's pretty good, wasn't it? I'm going to have to use that again next, next service. Noah found favor because favor found Noah. If you look at that verse, it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word for found has an element of surprise to it. Here's what I want you to know. Noah was as surprised by God's favor upon his life as anyone else. Just like when the grace of God comes into your life and you see yourself For your own wickedness and the inclination of your heart not to be after God, but to be in some way averse to God. And yet God in love sets his grace upon you. You're as surprised as anyone, often more. That's what it means when Noah found favor. He was as surprised by any way. But the grace of God in his life was most demonstrated by the conduct of his life. You see, a greater purpose we see here is that Noah demonstrates God's grace to make one righteous when he sets his love upon us. And friends, everything of significance that takes place in the next three chapters takes place because of this one statement. Noah found favor with God. Noah was a righteous Man, everything that leads up to it sets the stage for us. And everything that happens and occurs after it until the end of Noah's life 
is a result of it. Look at verse 11 with me. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So here's what God does. God tells Noah that because of the corruption on the earth and the violence, he's going to destroy it and all that is on it. But he commands Noah in the very next verse, verse 14, to build an ark. And he provides the dimensions. He gives it the, the length and the width and the height and the breadth. And he talks about the layers and how he's to lay it out. And as he does this, he shows great favor in that he explains to Noah why he's commanding him to do this. Now, God doesn't always give the why when he shares the what. I mean, think about Abram. And just a few chapters later, God's going to tell Abram, go. <laughs> okay, where? Just go. Just go. I'll show you. But here, he actually gives the why. And he tells Noah what he's doing. And he tells him that he and his family will be saved because he's found favor in God's eyes. And so God's command is set against the prevailing wickedness of the world. And it comes with the promise that there will be a place of refuge and salvation. And that place will be the ark that he has commanded Noah to build. Let me, let me encourage you in this way too, friends. When you read the word and you hear God's commands, before you want to think or even have any inclination of what you feel about that command, consider how it is and why it is that God uses that command. Because you see, the very command that he gave to Noah would be the very way that his will and his work would be brought about in his life, which would become salvation for himself and for his family. And God goes on to tell Noah that he'll establish a covenant with him but Noah must trust and obey him in order to receive the blessing of that covenant. And one final insight to how Noah walked with God. If you read this passage, at the end of every portion of it, here's what you'll hear. God commanded, Noah did as God said. God said, Noah obeyed. And here we begin to see a pattern of Noah's obedience to God's command. So then the ark gets built. Chapter 7, God commands Noah to go into the ark. Take the animals that I've told you and, and then to go in. He repeats to Noah that salvation is because of his righteousness. It's because he's a righteous man. He's found favor in God's eyes that God is using him in this way. And he commands him to go into the ark and to take the animals with him. And again, we see it repeated. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. At 600 years of age, Noah entered the ark. And then it says this, and God shut them in. God was the one who shut them in. I'm sure Noah was comforted by that, considering to all of our knowledge, he was the first that ever built a boat. And it was the first boat that he ever built. You've heard the adage, the Titanic was built by professionals. The ark by a novice. So when it says that God shut them in, it also tells us something else about that boat, friends. That it was used for the purposes for the one who commanded it to be and who held it throughout. You see, obedience to God's commands are shown as the pattern of Noah's living. It is the fruit of his life, not the source of his righteousness. 
Are you tracking with me on that? Because most times we want to look at Noah and go, he was just a good guy. That's why God did what he did through him. That's not true. That's not what the scripture teaches. The scriptures teach that his obedience was because of the righteousness that God put upon him and the favor that he had shown to him and Noah living in light of that. But it shows us something else, not just about Noah. It tells us something about the pattern of God's character and God's nature, that God is faithful to his commands and to his promises. What God says, he will do. And so we see that the rains fell and the water began to rise. For 40 days, it says, the rains fell and the waters rose. You see, the circumstances of God destroying the earth and all of its inhabitants were no cruise ship, friends. <laughs> like there was no social activity coordinator that came out every day and said, okay, it's bingo, it's time for shuffleboard or whatever they do on cruise ships other than give everybody the flu. And that's the reason I don't. You see, when, when, when Noah and his family were in the clutch of God's salvation, it, doesn't, it didn't mean that they never experienced the severity of what was taking place around them. The rain was not only discomforting, but just as with you and I, 40 days of overcast gray and solid rain can be a little depressing, can it not? And they were subject to that as well. As a matter of fact, they were closed into a big wooden boat. And every aura that emanated from every beast on the boat just got absorbed by the wood and blessed over and over and over again. I'm telling you, this was not a place where sanitation and hygiene was of top priority. I mean, this place was real and we shouldn't make it less than it really was. It's not that there was no experience of the judgment of God upon the sin and the wickedness upon the earth, but that at the end of the day, there was salvation that was coming to them through it. A far more beautiful picture emerges about the boat, though, friends. As God's judgment against man's wickedness rose higher in the water, it literally says that it was the waters that lifted the boat. Now, you and I, we're not overly impressed by this because if we've been anywhere near water, we know this, that if a boat has any snuff about it at all, it what? It floats. So we go, well, sure, the boat floated. But that's not what the Scripture's saying here. The, the Scripture is telling us that when the waters rose, it lifted the boat. What was the boat but God's instrument of salvation for his people? What was the water? It was God's judgment upon the wickedness. The higher the waters rose, the higher the boat was lifted. Friends, this reminds me of Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 and 21 where it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does the law of God do? But tell us what sin is, right? Tells us where we are in sin. It tells us what is right. It tells us what is wrong. But it goes on to say this, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When the judgment of God by the waters on the earth rose, God's salvation always exceeded the rising tide of his judgment for his people. 
That's a beautiful picture, friends. It's not about physics. It's about the love of God. Everything on earth died except those who were inhabited in the saving grace of God. Upon righteousness, there is no sin that can nor will ever outrise the saving grace of God. And that, friends, is a beautiful glory for you and I. Those must have been quiet days on the boat. You just imagine, initially, there was a lot of ruckus taking place. And then as the sound of rain began to fall and the waters began to rise, that sound began to subside. And what was once likely very violent and tumultuous outside the boat eventually silenced as those people died and as all that was on the earth died as well. And then it was just the washing of the water up against the sides of the boat day after day. They were on that boat for over a year. And day after day as the waters washed along the boat It's likely that the silence was greater than the noise because of what it meant had taken place on there. Look at the contrast to creation, though. It tells us at the end of chapter 7 that everything on dry land in whose nostrils was breath of life died. That's a potent chapter of Scripture, friends. And it is a picture for us of how it is that God judges sin, how He feels about sin, how sin grieves His heart, and what judgment will do to sin. It tells us where we are in our sin without Jesus. And then when we come to chapter 8, we see... Some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. 8-1, but God remembered Noah. Those are sweet words, aren't they? God remembered. At the end of the flood, God was not yet done. Let me ask you something, friends. Have, has God ever, have you ever sensed that God was speaking to you and that he said something to you? And maybe that something that he said was either an answer to a question you had, a solution to a problem or a challenge you were facing, or, or maybe the delivery of something to meet a need that you had in your life. And, and you really felt like God had brought you to a point where he was going to provide in one of those ways that you were asking of him. But in the meantime, there was like a, a period of wait. And in the period of that waiting, did you ever begin to wonder if God had forgotten? (laughs) Maybe you reminded him, hey, hey, I just wondered, wanted to check in on where you were on that whole, you know, thingy you told me, that that promise you made to me, that thing that you were doing. Don't you know that in over a year's time, there was at least an hour of a day at some point when Noah or one of his family members said, (laughs) God, remember us? Remember, we're we're still here. We're still on the boat. We can't see anything except for these little windows we're all trying to stick our head out of to get a breath of fresh air. But at the end of the flood, it tells us that, that God remembered Noah. 
God had not forgotten the one that he had closed up inside of the ark. And, and Noah demonstrates where it is that his source of righteousness was coming from because it was also his source of wisdom. And this is wisdom for us, friends, that, that God commanded him to build and then God commanded him to go into the ark. And then when they went in, God is the one that shut them in and God held them there. And, and through all of these days, God was not speaking. The last thing God had said was go in and then and he shut the door in on them. And that's the last word they heard. And that's the only thing they could remember. And would God remember them? But, but we come to chapter 8 and we hear the words that God has remembered them. God didn't forget them. He will command them to come out of the ark. Noah continues to wait on God. And maybe nothing proves that God's righteousness has been set upon his children like our willingness to wait in the hours, in the days, the weeks, the months, sometimes the year of God fulfilling the promise, of God providing what it is that he has told us he will give to us. Maybe nothing proves his righteousness on us more than like our willingness to wait for his command, his timing, his will to be fulfilled in our life. That's what we see in Noah. That's what's taking place here. The water subsides, but Noah waits. He sends out a raven, and then he sends a dove, and the dove comes back. Sends it out a second time, it brings an olive branch back. The third time, it doesn't return. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided. So at that point, he, he removed the covering from the ark so they could begin to see out. But what did he not do? He did not leave the ark. Why? Because God had not told him to. God had not told him to. And then God commanded him to go out from the ark. And he repeats at that time the creational command, be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. More than a year later, after they entered, Noah and his family exited the ark. Why? Because God remembered them. The time was long and the days were hard. But you know what Noah and his family found in the midst of that? That God is always faithful to his promise. God remembered Noah and his family and he saved them from sin's destruction. Can you imagine what it must have felt like when their foot stepped back over a year later onto dry ground and the squish of the moisture of the water that remained in the ground but the deafening silence of nothing else being there. And the reminder, just the still small voice in the heart that says, God is faithful. God will do what he said he will do. God will remember. Friends, sin grieves God deeply and he will not tolerate wickedness. But Jesus makes us righteous and he holds us safe in God's eternal salvation there's so much that can be gleaned from this narrative about God who he is about grace about salvation but at the end we see one distinctive factor that saved Noah and his family and it's this God saw Noah's righteousness and he chose to save he and his family if friends if Noah's righteousness led God to save and to use him then the one defining question that should receive our attention is simply this. What is it that made Noah righteous? What is it that made Noah righteous? If it was the righteousness of Noah that God saw, 
what made him righteous so that when God looks upon the earth, he will see and we can know what would cause him to see us as, as well. Once we answer this question, we'll best understand how the story applies to us today. And I want to do that by posing two questions that every person must answer in order to be found righteous in God's sight. And as we answer these two questions, we'll know what it is that made Noah righteous. The first question is this. What is it that makes anyone righteous? Noah was not righteous. And God didn't choose him because he was just the great guy that we identified a while ago. I'm not saying Noah wasn't a great guy. I'm just saying that's not what made him righteous and that's not why God set his favor upon him. Noah was righteous because he was made righteous by God as anyone who is righteous is made. That's what the whole counsel of God's word teaches to us. That's what Genesis is introducing to us. You see, the best way for us to see Noah's righteousness is evidenced in the pattern of his life of obedience to God. Yes, but that's not the cause of his righteousness. That is the product or the fruit of his righteousness. It was Noah's hope and faith in God and God's promise. God is the one that made Noah righteous by his grace. That's what it means for his favor to be upon Noah. It was the grace of God that was set upon Noah. And it was that grace in which Noah walked with God. You see, we get confused and deceived when we ask the wrong questions. Now, one right question that gets asked in Scripture that helps us here was in the third chapter of the Gospel of John when Nicodemus came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, we know that you have come from God. What must we do to be saved? You know what Nicodemus was saying, right? We know we're not righteous, but we're not telling anybody because it is a ridiculously beneficial gig for us. He was a religious leader. Elevated in everyone's eyes in that day and time. And Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And what, what, what Nicodemus heard when he said that, he, he acknowledged what anyone would acknowledge. Well, thank you for that. But I have absolutely no idea how you are to be born again as a grown man. And Jesus said, you're born of water, but you must be born again of the spirits. And to be born of the Spirit only comes from God. You see, the only one that is made righteous in God's sight is the one that is born of the Spirit by God himself. And only God alone makes one right before him. That's what he is teaching us. Some might ask, though, but, but I thought God was love. And if God is love, how can he get away with not saving everyone if he loves us? You see, this question presumes two wrong factors. It pre presumes that sin is not all that bad and people are not all that responsible. But Genesis 6 tells us something completely different. Genesis 6 tells us that the sin of the heart of humanity and its wickedness was covering the earth in such a way that it grieved God to the very center and core of his being. In fact, Genesis and Scripture poses a different question for us. In God's holiness, and this is a much greater question to begin with, in God's holiness, we don't ask how could he not save everyone, but how could he spare anyone? If our hearts are full of sin and wickedness, how could God look upon any of us and spare us, let alone be bound to save all of us? 
And that is the very question that the Bible answers for us in the gospel. This is a true solution that is given both then and now. And here's the way the Bible describes it. Divine forbearance in the days of Noah, divine patience for us today. That's what 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us. God passed over sin in the days of Noah because he knew Christ would suffer once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous righteous in order to save people. Now, maybe you have heard it said, how did people of the Old Testament get saved if everyone is saved because of Jesus, but Jesus had not come yet? Well, the people of the Old Testament looked forward to the hope of the one that would come, a Messiah that was based on the promise of God. And that is true. But friends, we're looking at something before the promise of salvation is explicitly given. We're seeing something by God and his very actions here that often we overlook completely. Completely, but it is the essence of salvation. It was not just Noah looking forward going, well, Jesus is going to come. He's going to die on the cross and my sins will be forgiven. It was God who was looking forward at the cross. It was God who was seeing Jesus sacrificed there. And it was God who was putting Jesus in Noah's place at that time because Noah was hoping in him. God was the one looking forward. It is God who looks at the cross and accounts that sacrifice for you and for me today. And regardless of whether he's looking towards it or he's looking back upon it, it always starts with the cross of Jesus Christ. And only by the cross does anyone know and are they known by God and God alone. Listen, friends, don't think that in some way the Bible flips a switch And God's second plan comes out later. I'm telling you, from the beginning, Jesus was the plan of God to reconcile all humanity to himself. Noah was made righteous because Jesus died for him as he died for you and I. And God looked upon the death of Jesus and he applied it to Noah because Noah believed. And he will apply it to you today if you will believe. That is the only way you will ever be made righteous before God. For the cross of Jesus is the justice and the redeeming love of God on full display in complete manner. At the cross, God's holiness and his righteousness is fully justified. And at the cross, God's love is fully displayed and offered to all. There is no other way for people to be saved from sin. On the cross, God judged sin once and for all. And on the cross, God loved people ultimately and eternally. God makes people righteous and only by faith in Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He took Jesus and he offered him up as a propitiation, as a payment for the debt that you and I owe because of our wickedness and because of our sin. That was divine forbearance when he passed over. But today it is divine patience because Christ has come. The fullness has been revealed. And friends, to us, the Bible warns us that we should not think that God is in some way slow in fulfilling the promise of his judgment upon sin. Be careful. We we should not think that God is in some way slow or that he's forgotten or will dismiss and fail to judge 
sin. Peter also tells us that, that God's slowness is his patience with you. God is being patient with you today, friends. Be very careful that you don't in some way think, I'm okay with God today, maybe another day. That, that maybe I'll just wait till a better day. No, friends, this is why the Bible tells us not to harden our heart when we hear the voice, but to repent and receive him, for today is the day of salvation. Saying no to God today and, and saying, hey, I'm going to wait till another day, I'm going to wait till a better day, is the same as scoffing at Noah on the day that God told him to go in. Only Jesus makes you righteous before God, but he saves all who believe in him. And the answer to that question, who makes us righteous, is here, today. As you hear the gospel, put your faith in Jesus. Receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that God has given through him and be made right before God. And so this naturally leads us to our second question. What then are you trusting to be made righteous by? You see, knowing that only Jesus makes us righteous, we should each ask ourselves, what then am I trusting for my righteousness? And the best answer to this question will be revealed in the same way it was shown in Noah's life, by the actions and the patterns of his faith and how they led him in obedience to God. Too often we live by the question, what's the least I have to do to be okay with God? You see, this pattern of thinking is sin-stained to the core. It shows no signs of new birth in our heart. For the gospel, when it takes root in us, and when transformation, a new heart is put within us, it radically revolutionizes our thinking to the very purpose of our existence, to be able to ask, how can I live to maximize God's work in me, to make me most like Jesus? You see, to know God is to live for more Jesus in your life, in every way, at all times, and to the fullest extent. And the righteousness of God is the greatest joy and the greatest happiness of our life. And anything in this world that would even cause the temptation or the inkling for you to begin to believe that righteousness from God for you was in some way a second class happiness or a subpar experience in this life should be confronted with the light of the truth of God's word that says absolutely not it is the righteousness of God that he has placed upon me that comes to me by the revelation of his word in which I want to walk every day. day friends righteousness is not about perfection righteousness is about a faith through repentance unto forgiveness and cleansing as we walk with God. Those who are made right by God walk with him by faith through obedience to his commands. I'll close with this. God commanded Noah, build the ark, told him to go in, shut him in. He remembered him. He commanded him to come out. Listen, friends, God will command for you to participate in your salvation as well. Philippians 2 tells us that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. <laughs> Noah built the boat that saved his family. But it was God's command that enabled the building of that boat. And it was God's hand that shut him in and held him. And when the judgment of God came, it was the judgment upon sin that lifted them above the judgment of God into the grace and salvation.
God will bring you into the work of your salvation. But friends, it is God and only God who saves. Righteousness is the glory of God put on us in salvation. Godliness is our living out of that righteousness by faith in Him and obedience to His commands. What are you trusting for your righteousness today? Only Jesus, only Jesus is the ark of God's saving grace for you. Let's pray.